I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. This is an extended interview of a conversation with CU Boulder Electrical Engineering Professor Frank Barnes and wireless radiation watchdog and author Katie Singer. We broadcast the broadcast interview on Tuesday, June 3rd, 2014. There's one thing I wanted to show you to indicate part of what the problem is. Oh, here it is. This is some data that one of my students took. It's the ratio of exposed cells, mastocytoma cells, to ordinary cells, to the controls. And one here is if everything was the thing. And you can see we get an increase here. And backing up a little bit, when you said uh, what kind of cell are you comparing to? Mastocytoma cells. Which is a cancer cell? Yeah. And you can see here that for this field strength, we're increasing it. And over here and here, we're decreasing it. So you get a, up to a four to one increase in one direction, change the field a little bit, and you're cutting it to less than a quarter. When you say it, what is the it? The number of cells over the number that would you expect growing the culture without exposure. Meaning that different radio frequencies seem to affect whether they, they grow faster or slower. Frequencies. These are low, these are 60 cycles, okay? Just electromagnetic waves. 60 cycle 60 fields. Standard magnetic fields. Okay? The reason I call this is, is the complexity of the problem. Okay? Small changes can take me from seeing essentially nothing, cutting the growth rate to almost nothing, to accelerating it by a factor of four. So I'm Katie Singer. I've just published this book, An Electronic Silent Spring which explores the health and environmental effects of exposure to magnetic fields and radio frequency fields. Magnetic fields can be emitted by our 60 hertz electrical system, and radio frequency fields are used by wireless technologies. Someone asked me about six months ago what qualifies me to write this book, and I said, I am a kindergartner. And the scientists I've been talking with understand that if, if they can explain something to me, I know I'm going to make mistakes, and I hope you'll correct me. Okay, so what I hear you saying, number one, the issue is very complex. And what we're talking about are the biological effects of exposure to, in this case, um, 60 hertz, electrical magnetic fields. Okay, and what you said is that uh, one of your students has observed very subtle changes. Lead to very different results. So what's really complicated about that is that the subtlety affects us and we can't see or feel or hear without an audio meter, <laughs> um, these emissions. And so we, you know, we're just using these devices or we're using basic electricity to light our houses and run in refrigerators and communicate by telecommunications. We don't notice anything immediately. But what, so what is it that you're saying is happening? Well, Things are, one, time-dependent. A very large part of the time, nothing happens that you can observe. It doesn't mean that it has, the body hasn't sensed something. But we have many repair processes, many feedback loops, and none of us would be alive today if we didn't because a lot of things that are not, at one sense, good for us get corrected all the time. They may only have some real effect on us when we say you have too much of something, or when you've got compound problems. In simple terms, every cell in the body functions by electrochemical signals. That's close to true, if not true. I wouldn't go so far as to say every cell, but most the ones I've looked at, yes. The conflict that we've got, I'll go federally, is that I can start in the 1930s. The FCC determined this thing called harmful interference. Harmful inter 
interference is any electronic device that interferes with existing radio or TV broadcasts cannot be marketed. So you can market anything you want as long as it doesn't create harmful interference. And now we include internet broadcasts in that regulation. I haven't checked that, so I'm not sure of the statement, but certainly interference was one of the things that they wound up being established to deal with. What they did not establish, and what they still have not established, is biological harm. That's true in the sense that they have not put down regulations on some of that. Now, there are safety standards that are generated a lot of ways, and there's a difference between voluntary standards and mandatory standards, and the, the issues of the legal part of how this gets put together is complex, and it's different in different parts of the world. Frank, when you look at something like the causes and effects and the impact of electromagnetic radiation in the body, it's hard to cipher out all of this. You are pretty sure that there is an effect coming from electromagnetic radiation. Well, I've sometimes started a public talk on this, said, look, we've known electricity's been dangerous for a long time. That's why we use it in the electric chair. That's not good for your health, all right? Now, the numbers count. It's also got to be true that there's a field that's small enough that it's not important, all right? The problem is how do you pick the numbers in between? There are different philosophies about how you do that. In the U.S., it has been that you set the level, you identify what is the lowest level known to cause damage, and then you provide a safety factor below that. On the other hand, in the Soviet Union, they set standards which were set at the lowest level they thought anything possible could happen. But the other side of it was they never enforced it. After a few shots of vodka, you'll find out some very interesting stories. My understanding is that the frequencies and amplitudes used to power wireless technologies, for the most part, they cannot be found in nature. No, you find you find all of the electromagnetic spectra down, but at, at the levels can be extraordinarily low. Not at the amplitudes that we're using. Yeah, there's a reasonable graph that will show you what the amplitudes are as a function of frequency, as you see from lightning strikes, cosmic radiation, the background of the Earth's magnetic field, and so forth. There are reasonable numbers and data available on what the natural exposure levels are. My conversations with Gary Olheft tell me we don't have these in nature. Meaning that the amplitude, the power of what the frequencies are, is not a normal ongoing thing in nature the way that it is in a man-made environment. I agree. The strengths are different. And the fact is we couldn't use it for communications if they weren't. And then I think the other thing that you're bringing in is what happens when we are chronically exposed to these man-made frequencies and amplitudes. What happens when you're exposed in utero? What happens when you're exposed as an infant? What happens when you're exposed from multiple frequencies at the same time? There's data on some of this sort of thing, and there is, certainly it's incomplete. But I know some very careful studies, because you don't want to, one, you can't do it to humans for, in terms of large controlled studies, but there have been expensive studies on mice and rats that have run for two or three years for a lifetime, so forth, and you know, you can cite examples for that. The one study I'm thinking of, for example, showed, yes, it didn't show any increase in cancer. In fact, it is, but they didn't mention it. it showed a decrease. There are a lot of studies that have been done, but that doesn't say they've covered the, all of the stuff you want to cover. Frank Barnes, it's my understanding that when there's a decrease in cancer caused by electromagnetic radiation, that still counts as an effect. And the yeah. fact that it's not known what caused that effect is disquieting. It says that there's potential for this to be beneficial, perhaps, but there's also a lot of potential for it to do unexpected consequences. I gave you the example of the electric chair. That's not good for your health, right? But I, I can give you examples of over a million cases have been treated with pulse magnetic field for bone healing in non-union bones. That's about 80% effective in fixing cases. Spectacular case I know of, for example, is a broken bone that hadn't healed for five years, and three months later it was stronger than original. 
So it goes both ways. Katie Singer. And I haven't read this study, but I know it exists that people who had that kind of electromagnetic bone healing later on have a much greater increased uh, risk for ALS. So, again, we want to know the long-term consequences. Like a lot of football players would get that bone healing technique because they would get a lot of fractures and such. I haven't seen that one. Of course, with football players, your biggest worry these days of days are concussions. That's the biggest problem. And a colleague of mine pointed that out, what, 10, 15 years ago, and was not able to get either the players' union or the owners to take a look at it until just recently. I guess my point is that electronics and wireless technologies can do very cool things immediately. And then the question is, how do they affect us long term? The answer is, I don't think we really know. But, for example, we've been exposed to radio TV towers for, what, since I've been around. And that's a spell. So far as I know, there hasn't been a lot of worries about some of that. Now, that doesn't say they haven't done anything. But it just basically, we've got substantial exposure over a significant period of time. Definitely, I can point out a bunch of studies that say they've got really dangerous effects, and I can point out a bunch of studies that say we didn't see a thing. I was trying to figure out what's the difference between where you're sitting on this chair and where I'm sitting on my chair. And what I got to was, if I'm really honest, I would not be here if not for technologies. We wouldn't be on this radio show if not for technologies. And I am certainly interested in strengthening my financial situation. So I can't say that I'm on one side of the fence. And I would guess that you've got feet in both camps yourself. I try to be clear about what I think I understand and what I don't. And I keep learning new stuff all the time. The point I would make is that you can't prove something is safe against all the things you haven't thought of yet. And we don't live in a risk-free world. Rather than saying something is safe or not safe, my point of view is you say, look, what do we think the relative risk is? How does that compare to things? And in general, if you find something scientific or some or new device, you find out things that happen in the short term and at high levels. And over time, your understanding gets better, and you see things at lower levels and longer periods of time. Then the question that the standards people have is, how do you set standards in the face of the fact that you know you're going to know more about this stuff and what long-term effects are at a later date? And I don't know how you get there at these days, but it's a matter more of philosophy on how you deal with risk than it is of what the science is at that particular point in time. Frank, if I can interject something here just to get some examples of where you all might have a meeting of the minds and where you might not. There are pacifiers now for babies that are wireless, meaning that they're transmitting a wireless signal as the baby is sucking on the pacifier. Would you recommend this device for parents, given what we know about electromagnetic radiation? Well, I don't know what the advantage is, but in terms of things I know, I don't see any good reason to do it. I wouldn't recommend it to start with, but I haven't heard what people think they're really getting from it either. Well, let's pretend that somebody thinks this might be a useful application and device from a safety standpoint, from what we don't know about developing brains and developing bodies. Is this an area where your sense of reasonable caution would say, well, gee, I, I think this one you might want to think twice about? Yeah, I certainly wouldn't recommend it to my grandson's I know enough about the possibility of things happening. I'd say until you've got an awfully good reason to do so, that's one I wouldn't do. But there are other things in that category, too. The Telecommunications Act of 1996, Section 704, states that no health or environmental concern can interfere with the placement of telecom equipment. That basically makes it very challenging for people who are concerned about their health it's basically impossible for someone who is concerned about their health to protect themselves and their community if somebody wants to put antennas on their, their apartment rooftop or their building rooftop, their office or school rooftop. Our laws certainly concern me. We don't really have an opening for people who are concerned about their health in this situation. That's a difficult issue. Basically, 
I think that's probably too strong a law. I think there are concerns, and there's certainly reasons for people to be concerned. On the other hand, how you balance that out with the other things that you need to do. For example, we simply wouldn't have cell phones or radio or TV if we didn't have some standards that you could work to because you couldn't develop it different for every single spot. But to go the other hand, I think also, and I put in a comment to the FCC wants to change that again, indicating some caution. But going back to what I said before is I expect that the numbers are going to go down over time. We're going to see more things as we understand stuff better. The numbers of what? The numbers meaning the levels at which you see effects are going to go down over time. Meaning that over time there'll be a greater awareness that electromagnetic radiation can cause effects that are measurable and predictable at lower levels, and so that that means that the FCC and other regulatory agencies might say, let's pull down what we've considered to be the safe threshold. I would not say safe. I would say you've got to look at the risk that you've got. You would say that there are higher risks at lower levels than one knew about earlier. For example, my students and I discovered that when we canceled out the Earth's magnetic field, took it from 45 microtesla to zero, we saw inhibition in the growth. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have said that because I didn't know it. Those fields are very weak. And when you say inhibition in the growth, you mean of any cell or of cancer cells? We saw it in two kinds of cancer cells and not in a third. That's an effect I would not have expected ten years ago. And Gary Olhoff, in his experiments with that electromagnetic radiation of the Earth, found out that if he bred fish in an aquarium in that kind of environment, the offspring were born blind. Unexpected effects. I think we're going to see more of those over time. Well, we absolutely need the Earth's electromagnetic field. Animals need it and plants need it, and we've been orienting this way for billions of years as biological creatures. What I was going to explain was specific absorption rates. A specific absorption rate is the amount of radiation that the FCC allows an area of tissue to absorb Specific absorption rate is decided as essentially the amount of energy absorbed divided by the density. That was an interesting detail in your book, Katie, where you talked about how the FCC or some regulatory agency decided that putting a cell phone to the ear counted as not really putting it close to the brain in some strange way. Last September, the FCC, not exactly a group of a group run by biologists, but the FCC reclassified the pinna of our ears. The pinna are the outer parts of our ears. Now these body parts are considered extremities. Meaning that they're considered like a foot or a hand. They are equal to feet and hands, which are already considered extremities. These body parts are legally allowed to absorb much more radiation than the head and the trunk. Now, they may not have noticed at the FCC the proximity of the outer part of the ear to the brain (laughs) and the rest of the head. makes a person wonder, but right now, legally, these body parts, the outer parts of the ear, are legally allowed to absorb much more radiation. And, of course, they don't consider children. They don't consider infants. They don't consider pregnant women, they don't consider people with medical implants, all of whom may be more vulnerable to radiation than 200-pound, 6-foot-2 men. The way in which some of those things do departs from the science in part. So I'm in dangerous ground if I comment on that one because I really don't know a lot about why it is. I can make lots of guesses, but I really don't know. I do know a couple of the people at the FCC, and I've worked back and forth with them on various things. I've given a talk there. But what goes into some of those decisions is it's not something I'm in a position to really comment on. Rather than comment on that, from what you know about science, is the amount of radiation that our hand absorbs a different issue than the amount of radiation that's touching our ear, which is so close to our brain? It's a different issue at every different location. It doesn't say that something that you do at one place doesn't affect something somewhere else. You stick your finger or your foot on a pin and you feel it in your brain. So the body communicates. 
But if you stick a pin in your brain. Well, it may or may not do anything depending on where it is. The devil is in the details. You've got to be quite careful about what stimulation, over what period of time, what else is going on, what the past history is, and so forth, because you're going to get different effects at different times. And certainly you're correct that things are different for children than they are for healthy adults. They're different for old people. They're different for people who've got other diseases and so forth. So the situation is not just one simple description fits everything. That's absolutely clear. I don't know if you saw, according to the CDC, as of March 2014, one in 42 boys is now autistic. And that number has skyrocketed in the last two years. Um, And two years ago, uh, one in 88 children, that's boys and girls, was autistic. And now we're up to one in 68 children are autistic. And is autistic. And um, I'm in touch with a pediatrician in the Bay Area who's been advising families with autistic children to eliminate their Wi-Fi for 12 hours a day, especially during the night, to get cabled internet access, and to eliminate electricity to the child's room while he or she sleeps at night, and to do this experiment for two weeks. And she is seeing remarkable improvements in these autistic children's behavior. If I had an autistic child, I would want to try that experiment right away. Of course, in some communities, it's not possible because it's hard to turn your electricity off at the breaker box. It's a long story. And some communities now don't have landlines. The FCC is eliminating landlines in some locations. That's an experiment that's increasing all the time. But if a family can do this experiment, get cable to access, and eliminate electricity to the bedrooms while the child sleeps, it's a worthwhile experiment. So I'm okay with the experiment. I simply don't know enough about this subject to comment effectively. Frank Barnes, in terms of the scientific method, certainly there are citizen experiments someone can try to see if it affects them or their child. How do you as a scientist take that kind of information and find a way to evaluate it in a way to say whether there should be a wider recommendation for something like this? You have real trouble in getting individual cases down to broad enough cases because you'll wind up with a whole lot of cases, at least in terms of some of the studies I've looked at, where you don't see anything. It is very difficult to do these studies. The test exam I just gave, I asked all my students to give me two common problems with case control studies, and there are lots of them, all right? So it's hard to do this in a, in a way that is effective because I can pick a, a cluster on almost anything, and I may or may not have the right cause and effect. I'm hearing Frank say that this is interesting data, but it's not for him convincing yet. No, I wouldn't say it's not convincing. I'd say that it isn't adequate for me to, to be able to say on the basis of one or two cases that I've got a cause and effect. It may be there, but you can say, yeah, it's interesting, it's worth investigating farther, but to say that I've got cause and effect is a a lot stronger statement. And I'm not saying there's cause and effect. I'm saying it's a worthwhile experiment if parents have... I don't have any trouble with that at all. If you can wind up finding a way to do the experiments in a way where you show something in a solid way, that's great. Very helpful to know those sorts of things. And we certainly have uh, other cases, uh, things with mercury, things with arsenic and so forth that go along the same lines. You have to wind up following up and figuring out what's going on. Given the laws that we have now, such as the Telecom Act, Section 704, and the fact that we don't have FCC recognition of biological harm, for example, One of my IQ test questions is, which is greater, the amount of radiation that the FDA allows a microwave oven to leak or the amount of radiation emitted by a cell phone? I know the number for what it used to be, at least for microwave ovens, and I know an SAR number and I know a far-field number for cell phones. The far-field number is in the same ballpark. I think it's 
One's 10 milliamps per square centimeter and the other is 5 milliamps per square centimeter at a distance of one inch, if I remember right, for the microwave ovens. So they're within a factor of two of each other, but they're set on different bases. Basically, cell phones are allowed to emit more radiation than microwave ovens are allowed to leak. The difference, of course, is that most people don't put the microwave oven beside their head. What I was going to say is that it leaves individuals in charge of regulating themselves because the government policies really don't allow for this. The FCC, at least classically, hasn't been involved in biological activity. You know, they pass that off to NIH and various other people, FDA and so on. And so they they were set up to do something different, and then they've been pushed over into the direction of dealing with this, and they're not very well equipped to do so. You will get them to say so, too. And me. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is actually a really good wrapping up point because basically we've got a situation that we don't understand. I've got some other questions I have. Frank, did you get a chance to look at Katie Singer's book, An Electronic Silent Spring? I managed to read about the first 30 or 40 pages of it. It was all I had time to do because I've been grading term papers and grading tests this week. It really hit me at a time when it's harder to find extra time to read anything. Can you share your impressions of what you read? Well, my first reaction is is sympathy with respect to losing a son, because I lost a daughter here a couple of years ago, so I know a little bit about that kind of problem. There were some things in there I hadn't seen, but it doesn't tackle the part of the problem that I'm most interested in trying to solve with the work I'm doing, which is how do you go from the physics to the chemistry, from the chemistry to the biology, and from the biology to a health effect? There are feedback loops and repair processes all along the line. And where I have some background to do a little bit is on how do you go from the physics to the chemistry, and less so on how you go from the chemistry to the biology, and even less so on how you go from the biology to the health effects. I know a little bit about some of those, but not much. It's very interesting because you're bringing in so many different departments of science, physics, chemistry, biology, and we haven't yet included electrical engineering. What I found in writing the book is how rarely any of these people talk with each other. And then try getting two physicists to talk with each other and and say something where they understand each other and they agree on something. And then if we bring common people in, like me and some of the other people in the book whose lives have really strongly been affected, by exposure to electromagnetic radiation, we need to come together and talk. For me, the starting place is what you're saying. Okay, we've got a situation that we don't understand. If we come together in humility with that acknowledgement that we don't understand so much of what we've created. You know, it's interesting for me what you're saying, that you would like to go from physics to chemistry. um, And... I would love an army of that and then an army of chemistry to biology and a bunch of common sense mothers in the room, too. The problem and part of this is that the vocabulary developed to describe things that takes a while to learn. I happen to be one of the few people that knows both electrical engineering and some molecular spectroscopy. I hope that it gives us a chance of indicating some of the way you go from electromagnetic fields to the effects on free radicals. But that's just a small part of the problem. And there, you're correct, there are very few people who do it. And I can give some funny stories about people who, from one field, didn't understand enough of the other. And I, I have a lot of fun with that in my class. Electrical engineers and physicists make mistakes with regard to the biologists, and the biologists occasionally do very stupid things with respect to electric and magnetic fields. And just to be clear, our regulations are determined by engineers, and they support engineering needs. They don't recognize biological needs. The engineers would love to be in the position where they said that was true. (laughs) 
we would say that the politicians have given us some things because that's they're easy to blame. But for example, you know, we had an actress on the FCC making decisions about where to put Citizens Band Radio and didn't understand at all some of what went on in that area. Laws in some sense are like sausage. You really don't want to see how they're made. I want to ask some more pointed questions about the first 40 pages that you've read on Electronic Silent Spring. A layperson reading the very sad story about a mom whose son died where a surgeon had told the mom that it was a cell phone that caused the cancer. That's a pretty memorable story. As a scientist, how do you look at that kind of story from the point of view of data? I don't trust the doctors when it comes to say cause and effect on some of this because of the ones that I know, very few of them know any physics. Now some of them do, and there are some that I absolutely agree with. But I take that cause and effect statement on that with a substantial bit of caution. And the reason is that I've been in this game since 1975. I've seen doctors make some statements that were flat false. Now there are other ones that are doing absolutely correct. So I'd want to know more. You'd want to know who the doctor was who said that and how much experience they had. I'd want to know a lot about their background and what line they've got for cause and effect. Now, the fact that somebody's heavily used the cell phone and comes down with a brain cancer, yes, that's interesting, but that's not complete enough for me for cause and effect. There are a lot of other things going on that I know I don't understand. I know I don't understand how you go through the cause and effect on electromagnetic fields detail. I can't tell you what the steps are that goes from a certain number of milliwatts radiated for a certain period of time with a certain pulse shape all the way through to say this is this caused the change in this growth of this cancer or initiated I just don't know all those steps and I don't know anybody that does. Katie Singer, Frank Barnes is saying he's respectful and sympathetic to this mom and the story that she tells but he's not confident that the doctor giving that opinion is an opinion that he would trust himself. What do you think about that? You're suggesting I shouldn't have included that part of the story. No, or maybe, no go I'm ahead. not saying you shouldn't include it. I'm just saying I take that as a data point by itself, but I don't take the statement that cause and effect has been shown to be so, complete. I never claimed cause and effect. I'm just quoting the doctor. Or you're quoting the... I'm quoting the mother who, who's quoting the doctor. I, but here's where, here's where I'm coming from on relaying this story. Telecom companies in this country will not turn over their subscribers' usage data to epidemiologists. That means we've got mothers who are, like this woman, Ginger Farver, becoming their own researchers because we don't have anyone else doing it. And so she has to do it, and she really wants to alert other mothers everywhere that these cell phones may cause many problems, including brain cancer. And I really admire her for her research. I admire her for her courage in sharing this story with other people. I don't have any problem with that at all. But I, as I say, I've looked at enough of these things in various cases. Most of the people are not lying. Most of them are telling the truth as they see it. I want to limit how far you extend from beyond that in terms of at least the way I look at these things and saying, yeah, okay, that's true. People that are electrosensitive clearly have problems. I'm not sure in many cases it's cause and effect. Some of the cases I've looked at are pretty likely psychosomatic. But that doesn't say people don't have real problems. They definitely do. I've looked at quite a bit of this. I just feel I have to be cautious in how far I take that beyond saying, yeah, this is what people have seen. Let me go back to one point that you were talking about, Katie Singer, regarding getting hold of the data of usage. From a science standpoint, Frank Barnes, would you be delighted if that could be done? Sure. I'd like it. And I will hand it to what was Public Service of Colorado back when we did the second epidemiological study on uh, childhood cancer and power lines. And they were as cooperative as they could be, and they were clearly in a position where they were more likely to lose than to gain. And I think in the long run, they came out way ahead of the game because they were very cooperative. They would not tell you what the biology was, but they would tell you what the fields were. 
they helped us a lot in getting that data. There are other management people that are not, in my book, that forward. And so you would rather have the people who make cell phones and send out cell phone radiation and signals be open about usage so that scientists can compare it to what kind of health effects they're seeing in populations. As I said earlier, we've seen both positive and negative effects. The better we understand that, the better position we're able to tell people what's reasonable to do. One other question along those lines. Is there funding for the kind of research you would like to see happen? No. <laughs> I beg to differ. Go, go ahead. <laughs> okay, here's another IQ test. Tell me the name of the company, not the industry, the company that has more lobbyists than the oil industry or the healthcare industry. I don't know, but I could guess. I, 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 guess. I, well, I would guess that, that AT&T has yeah. more. more That's, right. That's right. There's money there. We all know there's money. Is there money for the kind of test you want to do, Frank Barnes? No. I've been on NIH committees. I've been on those panels. I've been turned down more times than you can shake a stick at. And I understand why. One, I'm proposing to do things that people don't know whether you're going to get anything or not. And when you just look even without any maliciousness, the odds get low. I've given a talk at the National Academy that said, look, we've got a very poor system for distributing money. NIH and NSF grants, your odds are 3 to 20% typically on the proposal. That means 80 to 97 percent of the people are wasting their time. And I say, what would you say if I walked into class on the first day of its class and said 80 to 97 percent of you got flunked this class? How many students do you think I'd have? I wouldn't bet on a large number. When it comes to private funding from some group like AT&T, they have historically not funded studies that might show an effect that isn't positive or benign is my understanding for the most I part. I have dealt with AT&T. I got some money a long time ago. It came through a group that was supported by Motorola and others, and we published the results. They weren't real happy with some of what we had to say, but it, it went through. I said what I wanted to say. The results came out as they were. Do they still fund that kind of study? I haven't seen any funding recently available in that area at all. And there are some very well-known people who have said no more money should be wasted in this area. FCC standards, for example, for cell tower emissions. I don't think there is even one person employed by the FCC who's making sure that those antennas are in compliance. Electromagnetic Radiation Policy Institute just did a rooftop antenna study in 23 states, and virtually all of the antennas that they studied were out of compliance. We don't have any regulators who are following up on quality control, let alone doing studies of health effects. I'm not supporting the fact that that's the case, but I understand why from the FCC point of view. I remember when we were looking at millimeter waves, one of the people from the FCC said, look, we've been accused of only responding on this. He says, with my three-man staff, I cannot compete with Bell Labs in terms of resources available to do this. And I would doubt very seriously if the FCC has the resources to do very much in the way of inspection. I just doubt if they have the funding that would put them in a position to do that. Now, that's not saying they couldn't do more. They could very well do more. But I'm saying that's a big job. And I would say that concerns me enormously because it means that antennas all around this country are emitting radiation and nobody is checking on them. Yeah, I can, I can say that. The place that they get checked is when somebody complains. EMR policy is doing that, and you can go to emrpolicy.org and find out more about what's going on there. Now, Frank Barnes, just so that you know, you're being filmed right now by a man who used to live on Lookout Mountain near all the towers where Len, how do I see your name? Aiken. Len Aiken, who is an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. That's an example of a place where there's a lot of cell tower and broadcast tower radiation hitting homes mm -hmm. pretty strongly, where it's been pretty well documented that those towers uh, create hot spots that are out of compliance with FCC regulations. 
and it's a documented cancer cluster for the state of Colorado, though there isn't enough cause and effect to scientifically say whether or not it's the cell phone radiation that's caused the cancer clusters. I think that that's a fair summary of what the official statements are about this. I know only a little bit about that case because I had some students go up and try to make models of what the, the measurements, the models were no good for that geography <laughs> with the rocks, trees, and up and down and so forth. You had to make measurements because the models were simply not good enough predictors. When you're in a valley with rocks and all that other stuff, the radiation levels are going to be different than if you're on the plains, for example. Yeah, and if you're sitting on a hill looking at the antenna, they're different again. But that's an example of something where the radiation levels were higher than what the FCC said was acceptable. Mm -hmm. Even there, we can't figure out publicly just what was going on with why is there more cancer in this area that happened to get more exposure from cell phone towers and broadcast towers. At this stage of the game, I don't know the the whole chain of events that it would take to say you've got a cause and effect in a direct way. It's certainly... the data is there to indicate this is the place to look and to try to follow up. But as I said earlier, I don't know how you go from the physics through the chemistry all the way to the health effects. Probably we're never going to get to a place of cause and effect that would satisfy your scientific method. Therefore, if someone is concerned about health, what are their options? If a community is concerned about its health, and it, for example, did not want those analog antennas to shift into digital broadcasting antennas because the radiation emitted by digital antennas is much more powerful. That was what the fight was on Lookout Mountain. Just because it's digital does not mean there's necessarily more power. could be that yeah. that was what was proposed, but those are two different things. What happened is that Congress passed a hotline bill in December of 2006 at 2.40 a.m. It was called a non-controversial bill at 2.40 a.m. that took away local authority of the Lookout Mountain area community from deciding zoning laws that would, the community did not want those digital antennas. So they snuck it under the table. At 2.40 a.m., you're calling that sneaking it in. Mm-hmm. It's outside my area of expertise to comment, but it sure looks like politics to me. (laughs) Well, and so if someone is concerned about their health, whether it's an individual, a family, or a community, what options do they have when we're living under these kinds of laws and regulation? We don't have much authority over our own health. Unfortunately, that's not the only area where we don't have that kind of control. It's in the political process that you got to deal with it. The obvious answer is move. No, you don't want to do it. Where on earth? Uh, North Shore of of Hudson Bay. Right into (laughs) fracking country? Are you crazy? Dude, no way. (laughs) All right, but, you know, there are places that are lower. Where? uh, There are places where you're relatively low. There's no place that I know of. You've got zero radio communication these days. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but... I don't know places where you can go, but I know if you're getting lost in the mountains, sometimes you're out of cell phone range and you can't use them when you want them. That wouldn't be a place where a person could have a family, raise children, and stuff like that. <laughs> and I think that's one of the questions, though. In a modern day today, do people envision that they could have the life they have today without electricity, without wireless communications that have really opened up Uh, huge possibilities in developing nations where they don't have to put out cable lines in order to communicate and find out if they have to walk the two hours to market that day or not. And with a cell phone, they can do that. There's so much change that we have kind of absorbed into our culture. All of these changes have really started, I guess I would say, starting with the electromagnet, which was... um, I think we got the telegraph in 1844. So the electromagnet was before that. And humans existed fine. We knew how to communicate and survive before then. And one of the things that Gary Olheft has pointed out to me is 
with the Industrial Revolution, we opted for fossil fuel. We could have opted for fuels that were renewable. Um, I don't, he, what was the kind that he told me? There's um, fuel cells and wind power that were available um, in the 19th century. And it would have created a different world. I think, um, I, I guess we're again in a situation that nobody understands and things are way more complex than anyone can figure out, including how to know whether the market is open or not in a third world country or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm kind of rambling here, but it's another, go, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, we, we've got a whole lot of things, technology, and one of the biggest problems is simply the growth in the number of people we have on the earth planet. And uh, Roland Rautenstrauss used to have a freshman seminar that ran and said, how many people could live in North America, including Mexico, without technology? And the number came out around 10 million, and he'd look around the class and he said, well, we've got about 300 million at this stage of the game. He says, I'm staying, where are you going? And so they're, they're trade-offs. I would say on the positive side for technology is that the average lifetime in the United States used to be about 40 in 1900, and it's now closer to 75 or 80. And How old are you, Frank? I'll be 82 this summer. And I get around because, of, for example, I had to have a hip joint replaced. All right? That wouldn't have happened before, and I'd sure be struggling if I was walking the way I was walking before I had that replaced. So... There are pluses and minuses to all this stuff, and as we understand stuff, the numbers and the things that we can modify and control and so forth get better. The car I drive today is a double a lot safer than my 1929 Dodge with wooden wheels on it. Do you think that having citizen activist groups such as the Electromagnetic Radiation Policy Institute to keep that pressure on industry to say we want to see that there's as little emission from these devices as possible and we want to make sure that they're safe. That's not what it's saying. We're interested in safer technology. We're interested in an aware public. We're interested in an FCC and, yeah, a federal agency that stands up to its regulations and that responds to the public when concerns are raised. One of the other things that's really come into play is around medical implants. So you mentioned a hip replacement. 10% of Americans have a medical implant, either you know something like a cardiac pacemaker, an insulin pump, or a deep brain stimulator. And these things commonly experience interference from other electronics. So if somebody with a deep brain stimulator, for example, walks through metal detectors at a mall, the implant, their implant can shut off, and they would have four seconds to reset, or they shake so badly that they can't reset without help. This is Gary Oloft, who's an electrical engineer over at School of Mines. He has an implant for Parkinson's, and so he's been monitoring that he goes through a library checkout, you know, turns off his implant. If his cell phone goes off, turns off his implant. I don't know what the best response to that is. Certainly, we are getting exposed to things we don't have control over. There's no two ways about that. But how you deal with that on a, on a broad basis, I don't know. In other words, do we get rid of all the metal detectors at the airports? How do you divide up who's responsible for what? I think that's a very tough problem, and it's I'm just an ordinary citizen with regard to any comments on that. I, you know. I, by and large, I think you ought to be protected in some sense from things that you don't understand and don't control. But not that can't happen in over a lot of regions for a variety of reasons. That isn't true. That would be nice if it were, but it, it, it isn't true. Well, and it's, I mean, in, in the case of implants, again, 10% of the population has some kind of implant. Mm-hmm. And is their lives are threatened just from common exposure. So mm-hmm. they have very limited experiences. Yeah, and it, I know on the pacemakers, a lot of work has been done to make those a lot less sensitive to external radiation. However, even Dick Cheney has been saying 
he can be targeted because now those newer cardiac pacemakers, somebody can come in and hack them and change the program in the cardiac pacemaker. Just a total stranger. Dick has said he's very concerned about this. The whole internet and the whole stuff was designed without, uh, on the basis everybody trusted everybody. It wasn't designed for security. And, you know, if they were to start today, you'd sure design it differently. As we can see, there are a lot of places <laughs> where these questions come in. Um, but we've been focusing primarily on electromagnetic radiation. And thank you both for your comments and for your insights. And good luck with what you do next. Thank you. When you look at some of the epidemiological studies and say on the average we're not seeing anything. And the example I give is I said the fellow with the feet with his feet in the fire sitting on the block of ice on the average he's at the right temperature, but it doesn't tell you what you want to know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. It's getting too advanced for me. That isn't too hard, is it? <laughs>